You're listening to Tech Nest, the PropTech Podcast. In each episode, you'll hear from PropTech founders, investors, and industry veterans on how they're using tech to change the way we buy, sell, and invest in real estate. Discover market opportunities, interesting data, growth tactics, and trends driving the industry forward. This isn't just another podcast about making money in real estate. This is about how we live. And now your host, Nate Smoyer. All right, we've got Vikasin Gupta on the show. He's the CEO of a company called Azebo. They describe themselves as a unified financial and property management platform for independent real estate investors. What does that mean? Well, it's really an all-in-one solution for those investors, specifically those with less than 50 units. Of course, we talk about Azebo, what they're building, but we also talk about their approach. Vikas emphasizes the importance of delivering delight, a topic I'm very passionate about and believe in deeply. We also talk about some of the changes that have occurred in the rental market brought on by the pandemic, what's going away and what's sticking around is the new normal, if you will. Let's jump right in. Hey, Vikas. Welcome to the show. Hey, Nate. Thanks for having me. Excited to have you on. It's um, We were previous competitors, and now, now we get to be friends. It's the best way to do it. At least then you'll know you'll know all the little hook, uh, nooks and crannies of the product to ask me about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I've got Vikas Gupta. He's the CEO of Azebo. Uh, Azebo is a, a sort of all-in-one solution for mom-pop landlords. That's how the succinct way I, I would put it, but specifically for those with 50 units or less. And I'd love to kick it off actually talking about that particular audience because it's it's been it's been where I've been playing and, and where I've focused my last few years of my career. But I want to start and asking you why focus in on this audience. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think it's a combination of a few things. Um, I guess it depends on the if, if the audience is familiar with prop tech, like this may not be news to them, but for a lot of folks, and even me before I got into this, it was news to me that right the overwhelming majority of real estate investors are mom and pop landlords. Um, and they own over half the rental inventory stock in the United States. And if you exclude the large 50 plus unit, 100 plus unit sort of multifamily properties, this segment owns, you know, 70, 80% plus of the inventory stock. Um, and so this segment is the housing provider for rentals in the United States. So in terms of why focus on them, you sort of, you have this market size, but it's also, it's like, that's, that's where the housing is. And then you pair that with the fact that for most of the history of software, these folks were underserved or not served, right? Think about the the legacy, and I, mm-hmm. I feel like I'm preaching to the choir given where you came from, <laughs> but uh, the legacy players out there, the, the Yardies, the App Folios, right? They're designed for institutional owner operators, investors, institutional property managers, right? They're not designed for this segment yet this segment is where all the housing is so when you think about where all the innovation has been and even sort of products and features that mm-hmm. benefit 
both landlords and renters that require to be deployed through software, if you're not making software accessible to this audience, you're depriving over half of the renters and 80% plus of the investors of modern tools. Um, and when I think about some of the products, you know, like mm. rent reporting to build your credit as a renter based off your renting history, like for a, that's a relatively new product, but it's largely deployed through digital payment portals mm-hmm. because you need to be able to verify that payment was made and it was made on time. And so if, if there's no software providing that service to this class of the market, then you're depriving over half of the renters in the United States with the ability to build credit off their rent. And so you can sort of like go down the list of, of different financial services, financial products that benefit people that are required to be deployed through software. And if the only software that exists serves the institutions where you're really depriving again, over half the country with, uh, with access to these products and services. Mm-hmm. So I think, I think it's, it's, it's an incredible opportunity to serve an underserved market and really provide real value, not just like a market opportunity from what's your TAM and what's your SAM and can you build an exciting company? But the way I think about it, where do I want to spend my time? Can I actually provide real value to people? Mm-hmm. And there's a real opportunity here to do that. Yeah, and you know, it was only a few years ago that HUD ran the initial pilot program to prove out that rent payments did, in fact, mm-hmm. raise credit scores. They, they started, I want to say it was Chicago Housing Authority. And, you know, they did that for a year. I had to laugh at this. I was like, wait a minute. So you're telling me HUD has to do an experiment to find out if this works. It's like, how do we not know this already? Like, we should just know this. But then... But then the, the probably the most significant tailwind for adoption here, because even after that, you know, there was already credit reporting was kind of a, becoming a, a thing that platforms were putting in place. The tailwind effect was California. What did mm-hmm. California, you know, maybe you can share a little bit about like uh, what, what they what they put in place that's helping drive adoption and awareness of uh, helpful tools such as, you know, rent reporting for uh, renters. Yeah, I mean, I, so I believe in California. We, uh, I say we. I'm a, I'm a Californian. We passed a law, although we passed lots of laws here. We passed a law saying that for a specific subsegment of housing, and I can't remember the exact criteria, but for a specific segment of the rental housing market, the owners were required to make available uh, rent reporting for credit building purposes to their tenants. And they could charge a fee, I think up mm-hmm. to eight bucks a month or eight ninety five a month in order to recover their costs, but they had to make it yep. available to this segment, which is fantastic because again, we need pushes like that to drive adoption of these products. Um, building your credit is so important to everything, frankly, in this country. It's probably too important in this country, but it is sort of the gatekeeping access to uh, mobility because you need credit to get an auto loan. It's the gatekeeping access to homeownership. It's the mm-hmm. gatekeeping access, mm-hmm. I, I mean, in some unfortunate cases, to, to employment because they'll do credit checks before employment. I mean, it really is uh, a sort of indicator that's critically important. And prior to being able to use your rent, um, you know, you had to take on debt. The only way to build your credit was to take on debt. So now there's a way where 
the single biggest expense in your monthly budget you can leverage if you pay that on time every month it's a great positive indicator and you don't have to go take on debt just to build your credit so i think it's i think it's incredible i think it's great i wish i wish i had been able to take advantage of it um you know renting for 18 years prior to buying a house yeah i did exactly what you talked about early on i don't know where i got this sliver of I don't know if it was advice or wisdom. I don't know what we call it, but I, I learned early on somehow someone's like, yeah, you have to have, you have to take out loans to build your credit score. And I was like, okay. So every time I had a big purchase, it was like a thousand bucks or more. I either went to the bank or, uh, you know, I used online banks and I would, I would have the cash to buy something, but I would do a personal loan just to like establish. I'm like, yeah, I'm paying extra. But you know, like when you look at the cost of a mortgage, half percent uh, uh, difference on your, your mortgage. Like we're not talking peanuts here. We're talking significant dollars. Uh, and I'm thankful, thankful yeah. for that. But the rent reporting would have been a whole lot easier to build up a proof of payment history uh, and that sort of thing. I, I want to shift a little bit because, I, you know, I said at the start of the show here, you know, you're kind of like a all-in-one platform for landlords. I, I'm going to give people, you know, if people haven't checked out Azebo yet, Rent collection, applications, lease agreements, insurance, accounting, tenant screening. There's a lot going on there. Uh, is there a like a a specific one of those solutions that you really you know hinge the platform on, or are you pursuing each one of those separately, or how does all that come together in when you're thinking about your go to market and building a product that is effectively solving problems for mom and pops? Yeah. That's a great question, and one we wrestle with from a product perspective every day. Um, so everything works together, but it can also be independent. So if you just want to come in and run a credit and background check, you can do that. You just want to come in and do a lease, you can do that. You just want to come in and do rent collection, you can do that. Um, banking, accounting, applications, insurance, all of that works on a standalone basis. But it all works better together because it's all the same data. So when you get an application, you get tenant mm-hmm. information. When you get the credit and background check, it's like, okay, we have the tenant information. Um, we have the property information that flows into the lease agreement. So now you just need to add a few more details about what the rent is and what the late fee terms are. And that flows into the lease. And then once you've done the lease and the e-signed, you've already invited them to interact with the platform. We already know all the payment terms. So then it's basically like, yes, rent collection. That's set it and forget it. Once you say yes, all that rent collection information flows straight into accounting, um, flows into banking. Now you can also use third-party bank accounts with us, but there's benefits to using our banking. You can set up multiple accounts. You can do your bill pay in the same place you're logging in. The bill pay lets you assign that expense to a property lets you categorize Mm -hmm. it by expense category then your accounting is done that's flowing into your accounting your accounting flows into your financial statements all this information is required to get the best insurance rates so it, it just it all connects and so it's just easier to do everything in one place but you don't have to if you don't want to if for whatever reason there is a piece of the product that doesn't work for the way that you do run your business don't have to use it with us but we feel like today People, especially busy people in this segment, right? It's rarely their full-time job. You know, they've got a full-time job. They've got a personal life. This is something you're doing on the side. And being able to log into one place to 
see how your rent collection is doing, to check your cash, to pay your bills, to screen your tenants, to admit new tenants, to get your lease done, to onboard a new tenant, to offboard an old tenant, return that security deposit, to do all that stuff, to do your accounting, do all that stuff in one place, just one fewer thing to log into, um, or five fewer things to log into, depending on how you're set up, just saves time, <laughs> right? And, and our customers have said that on average, they save between one to two hours per unit per month. So if you have five units, that's basically a full work day that you're getting back every month. Like that's it, not it, inconsequential. Yeah, yeah. Huge. I know we all like to believe it's passive income owning rentals <laughs> just because that's how it's classified when you, when you file taxes. But I think any, uh, you know, a lot, any, anyone who self manages will tell you that it's not truly passive mm-hmm. and, uh, you, you do need some systems here and there to, to help take it to the next level. Um, I mean, that's, that's quite a stack, and I imagine, you know, I, and I know the, the pains of kind of figuring out some of those those product questions, but I was curious how you guys did it. Um, I want to I shift a little bit here, though. Uh, we're, still, we're still in this, like, we're talking about things as post-pandemic, right? We don't talk about things like that when it refers to the great financial crisis. It's already so far gone in the, in the past that we're just kind of like, yeah, that time when, like, housing and the financial markets collapsed. We're, but we're still really freshly out of you know the 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 chaos the pandemic brought on it brought on a lot of change of behavior between owners and renters i'm curious what are some of the changes that you've observed in the market and have any of those changes resulted in long-term or do you believe they've resulted in long-term behaviors or is there a shift back if you were regression to the previous mean yeah i mean i i this may not be the best answer for a podcast, but I think it's it's all nuanced, right? There's no like cut and dry. I think it's it's especially like in real estate, it's all sort of very market dependent too. I mean, I think I think yeah. a few things that that the pandemic accelerated or created is I think it created a large or accelerated a movement towards having more first time one unit uh real estate investors, right? A lot of people who had a drive to, you know what, I need more space, but they held on to their house. Or what we're seeing today, the ramifications of like, I have a 2.5% mortgage that I don't want to let go of, but I need to, you know, move for whatever reason. And so they're holding on to that mm-hmm. property, which makes sense, right? If you're sitting on a 2.5% mortgage on a 5 to 9% inflation environment, you should absolutely be holding on to that property. But then they're renting it out, right? And so they're turning into to, yeah. to sort of, you know, incidental um, or first-time aspiring landlords. Um, so I think that's one trend. I think the other thing that when we talked about credit quite a bit, but I think the the inflation this may be transitory we'll see how it transpires over the next few years but i think the inflation surge that we saw during the pandemic and coming out of the pandemic and we're knock on wood on the tail end of has really and the sort of subsequent interest rate increases have really made credit much more important so to Mm. speak than it was three years ago because three years ago the difference between good credit and bad credit was Right, instead of paying three percent, maybe you're paying five percent. That's real money, no doubt. That's real money, but now yep. it's can you know as lending standards have tightened up, now it's the difference between being able to get a loan or not get a loan. Or if you're looking at like used cars, it's the difference between you know 
eight or nine percent and eighteen or twenty percent, right? Like, I mean, it's 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 truly you know affordability or access, um, and so I think that's that's an impact of the pandemic mm-hmm. that's going to take a long time to work itself out. Um, and those are just two I think that we're seeing. Um, and then I think you know there's other things that maybe not with respect to the specific market we're in, but in real estate in general. You know, obviously now there's a class of people who can work from home and that's caused changes in home ownership dynamics. And so it's caused rent, uh, it's caused real estate price appreciation in sort of desirable markets from a living amenity perspective, but traditionally didn't have access to job centers. So you're seeing booms in those, right? Places that are close to nature or places that are, you know, well, pretty much every place Californians are going, um, and then uh, and then the sort of the you know the corresponding drive to space, right? So people who now need a second office uh, or a home office, and you know whether that's a garage conversion, whether that's moving into um, a larger space, I think that's also caused you know certain shifts in the real estate market. And then I think I guess I keep on saying the last yeah. thing, but um, in in certain markets, like my home market of the Los Angeles area, you know, we're still dealing with, all right, how do you unwind the eviction freezes and the rent freezes and sort of those, what were supposed to be temporary measures to keep people in homes during a crisis? How do you now unwind those in a mm-hmm. way that, is not disruptive to the renters, but is also allowing the owners to start to recoup from some of the financial hardship they have faced, If especially if you haven't been able to increase rent in three years. And during those three years, the total of inflation has been 20 or 25%, right? And especially for the mom and pop landlords, these aren't deep-pocketed Wall Street investors who can always issue another bond and cover the cash costs. It's, you know, it's the difference between being cash flow positive and cash flow right. negative and, and your what's supposed to be your nest egg for retirement being actually, you know, a, 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 a leech as opposed to a little bit extra every month. Yeah. You're, t- I mean, you're totally hitting so many things in there um, on a lot of themes. And I think even one of them, I think uh, pre-pandemic, I had heard multiple investors say, "Well, you know, if I'm even if I'm breaking even, you know, with appreciation, I'll be fine." Mm-hmm. And and that long run may be true, but in the short run, you know, it's not doesn't take much to, to actually be cash flow negative. And if anything else happens or goes, you know, sideways, now you're in a predicament that you don't want to be in without reserves, and either forced to tap equity or to sell. You know, I mean, that's a, it's not a great position. Um, it, it's, it's, it's when, when you're, when you're talking about a few things of like changes and behavior and, and I just, I go back to, I think about this, this cracks me up every time I go back to like, when like it was like three or six months into the pandemic where like things actually shut down and everyone had to mm-hmm. work from home. You know, when that change happened, we had an article on noise complaints, the volume of traffic to that article skyrocketed. <laughs> We, I mean, we didn't write for that, you know what I mean? But uh, it was, it was, it was fascinating to experience that, to see that, like, 
because the volume of people searching for how to deal with a noise complaint, I was blown away that that many people needed help figuring out that problem. But we, you know, we just happened to have a well-aged, you know, an indexed article on the topic, and then the volume, you know, ten xed overnight because, uh, like you said, like people's <laughs> living arrangements suddenly changed. They didn't leave for work, so noise within your building or between your neighbor or even even just car noise outside suddenly changes, you know. And I I feel for every single person who was stuck at home with their partner in one bedroom apartments in cities because, you know, half of our bedroom turned into an office and then I took half the living room when we were in Chicago and it was just not super ideal, but hey, what are you gonna do? That's yeah. That was the sudden change and and that forced us, like many other renters probably, to really think about how do we wanna live, where does this wanna be, and is does this fit the bill? Mm-hmm. You know, Owners had to respond to that in some way. Yeah. No, even for, for me and, and my now wife, um, you know, we were moving in together and thinking about, do we rent? Do we buy? And prior to the pandemic, we would have been fine in a two-bedroom condo or apartment because I would have gone to work. She would have gone to work. Mm-hmm. And wouldn't have been that big of a deal. But then we started working from home and we realized that, all right, like we're both at home all day. And we're both on the phone all day. Well, more so me than her. And I tend to, when I get excited or frustrated, I tend to raise my voice. And so that she can hear what I'm saying. We needed more. Oh, you're the loud guy too. I'm I'm the loud guy. Yeah. Um, (laughs) And so, you know, then we were like, all right, like this isn't going to work. And so that definitely impacted the way we thought about looking for a house because it's, we need office space. And then. You know, we want to have a family. And so that means, you know, it's not just one or two extra bedrooms. It's okay. Well, you need the bedrooms, not just for you in the office, but you also then need to make sure you have something you can convert or go into if, if, and when we have kids. Mm -hmm. Um, And that, that was a huge consideration that definitely changed like the set of, of housing options we had in front of us. Yeah. I want to shift a little bit here and kind of talk through some growth. I mean, there's, you know, I think depending on who you talk to, there's about 17 million mom pop owners of residential real estate investors uh, across the U.S. But notoriously, it can be very difficult to find and to get in front of. What have you guys found to be uh, as you know either one way or some significant ways of driving growth, pursuing a fragmented difficult to identify audience yeah um that's the million that's the billion dollar question right how do you go aggregate <laughs> this set of folks um and i think i think what we found is is that there's a few things so there's, there's sort of like the typical playbook um for a product-led growth company and that's you know you're going to do content you're going to do seo you're going to do some paid digital uh, you're going to do social, right? Like now we have a podcast and we're experimenting with that. Um, so that all drives a certain amount of inbound. I think one thing that on top of that is key and is is important to all product-led growth companies is is getting some level of virality going. So how do we use our customers to mm-hmm. acquire more customers? And that's something that really only is going to take off when 
the product itself is a delight to use. Um, and, you know, delight is an interesting term to use when you're talking about financial management and property management software. Very few, like, is, is QuickBooks a delight to use? Like, I don't, I wouldn't necessarily say it is. I got to tell you this. I got, I got to tell you this. I, th- th- this is the word delight because I'm, I'm now delighted that you said it. This is the exact word we used at Avail. So I don't know if you've been like, you were taking some of my notes here prior to, <laughs> but we use the exact same, the exact same word because there's something magical about pursuing delight for your customer. Uh, and, and I didn't want to, I didn't want to cut you off, but uh, I, I appreciate that. And I think that that is such a, um, there's a lot packed into what that means to deliver and I think few genuinely aspire to to reach that. Yeah, and it's definitely an aspiration. I wouldn't say, you know, we're there yet. Um, we're there on some dimensions, but there's always more you could do. And I think the challenging part for people who run software, you know, it's not it's not like it was 10, 15 years ago where people didn't expect much of their productivity apps. Like now the expectation is, you know, consumer level ease of use functionality uh in an enterprise grade application um Mm -hmm. and so you know we've we've rebuilt over the past year we've rebuilt the entire front end of the application to make it faster to make it more seamless to make it easier to use um and there's you know there's a lot of functionality packed into this thing and making sure that it's both accessible um, but understandable and it's not overwhelming, but it's there if you need it. Uh, it's tricky. Um, it's, it's, it's a very tricky product design and UX problem, which is why we had to rebuild the entire front end, especially if you added so much feature functionality. So that's, that's a few of the things. And then I think, you know, to go back to your question on how do you go find these folks, um, not to get too far ahead of myself. So I'm going to be a little bit cryptic here but um over the next three to six months we'll be rolling out some pretty exciting partnerships with people in the space that have their own audiences of sub-segments of this market with i think pretty exciting um integrations and and sort of like co-marketing features and so that's something that we're investing heavily over the next obviously three to six months but going forward is you know, how can we partner with other folks in the ecosystem so that everyone's not starting from scratch? There's, there's certainly, there's things we do well, there's things other people do well. Um, no one can do everything well. Mm-hmm. So how do we take what we do well in our strengths and pair them with other folks who have their own strengths in a way that's mutually beneficial, or I would say not just mutually beneficial, but sort of like win, 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 you know, good for us, good for the partner, but also more importantly, good for our collectively shared customers at that point. Yeah, uh, I, I can uh, certainly appreciate that. Uh, and uh, yeah, keep that cryptic. I don't want you to give away the special sauce because uh, you know and I know the very first question everybody ever asks, how do you find these mom-pop yeah. landlords? I mean, how do you I know they're in my neighborhood, bill? but they block all my calls. They don't open. I can tell you. Actually, I love answering this question. All right, here you go. 
this is this is the answer that lets everyone down because it tells you everything you need to know without telling you anything. Empathy. The the mom pop landlord in California, in New York City, in Nashville, in the beautiful Silicon Prairie of Rapid City, South Dakota, has the same problems over and over and over. Some are monthly, some are weekly, some are annually. Some only happen when you turn over. Some happen with problem tenants. Some happen with good tenants. Some are financially driven. Some are management driven. Some of them are purely process driven. And some of them are just, you know, life happens, right? If, if ice falls from the sky or a tornado decides to spin up, right? Stuff happens. So in all those instances, the reason why I lean on empathy is that you have to actually know the problems that your customer is trying to solve for. If it's attached to your product, that's easy. Because if they found you looking for what your product solves for, then they buy. Mm -hmm. But aside from that, how do they find you in trying to solve the problem for a dispute and who should mow the lawn? And this is where I think uh, I I pull this from uh, Steve Jobs, but one of his three pillars of marketing that that he got from his mentor was to know and understand your customer better than anyone else. And so if you dig deep enough into knowing who your customer is, and then you find the opportunities in the market that matter, you can build your list. And once you've built your list, you've aggregated the audience that's very difficult to reach. And now you have an opportunity when the timing is right for them to make the pitch. That's the playbook. <laughs> Thought you, you were can actually keep that for, uh, I think, any uh, fragmented audience, but... I'll let everyone else uh, give it a shot. And then you can uh, send me your feedback if you're dissatisfied with my marketing strategy. I'm happy to hear all about your complaints. Um, but you do you do get what you pay for here. Um, I, thought I, I thought I was going to get something <laughs> a bit more tactical. I, wanna, I, wanna, no, I got a few more things a I want to ask before we jump towards... <laughs> yeah, we get, we get t- that's a whole different separate uh, ballpark. You get into the specific tactics. But... Um, I want to jump here a little bit and and kind of talk through, you know, of all the different services you guys are trying to uh, provide to customers and they solve a, an array of problems. What's perhaps one of the most interesting or and or difficult problems that you're trying to solve for? I think that's a that's a fantastic question. I, I think one of the most interesting and difficult problems that we're trying to solve is the accounting piece. Now. Uh, we are one of the only, maybe the only, depending on how you count, like platform that has its own sort of fully built-in accounting suite. Um, and it, the reason I say it's the most interesting is not so that I can say that. The, the reason we built that is because I think it's the most interesting. Um, and, and, and so why is it the most interesting? Um, first, um, one of the big, benefits of real estate as an asset class is taxes. And in order to maximize the tax efficiency or the value of the tax benefits of your real estate investments, you need clean books. And the better your accounting is, the better you're going to be able to maximize your tax advantages. So there's this huge, huge value driver in real estate that is entirely predicated on someone's ability to have clean books, mm. which is not something that you learn in school unless you happen to go to school for it. It's not something that's fun. 
it is very much a like eat your broccoli type problem, which is what makes it interesting. It is critical. It is important. It is a value driver. No one wants to do it. No one wants to think about it unless it's tax time. No one wants to touch it. And so I think it's very interesting. So I think what we've tried to do is make it as approachable as possible, which is fully integrated into the income, fully integrated into the expense side and make it work out of the box. And the question that I get a lot, and I got this from my board and I got this from my investors, is they're like, why are you spending so much money building accounting when everyone just uses QuickBooks? And QuickBooks is just not good for real estate investors. It's just not designed for them. I love QuickBooks, oddly enough. Like, I love it for my Because the, the small mom and pops also don't use QuickBooks. Well, a lot of them do. I mean, a lot of them, like their that, CPA the, says, go small sign mom and pop landlord don't use it. Um, I think it's a mix. I mean, certainly we've heard that, oh like, my, gosh. my CPA told me to buy it, <laughs> so I bought it, but I never log into it. That's, that's, <laughs> so I guess, I guess they're customers, but they're not users. Um, but, uh, but I think, you know, what we've tried to do is really make it so if this audience can get the tax benefits and, you know, partnering with, we've partnered with real estate CPAs to really design it to work for this audience. Um, and I think that's the piece that's the most interesting for us. And it's interesting both because it's, I think, vitally important, but it's also interesting from like a product and a marketing perspective, which is like, how do you design a very complex thing? that can be used by an audience that generally doesn't want to think about it. And then how do you market Mm. a product that is necessary, but no one ever wants to think about outside of the three months between January and April. Tell me about it. I I know the pains in the world of insurance. Ain't nobody want to be talking about that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm curious now that you're in insurance. um, I mean, it, it seems like it's wild times for the property insurance market, right? Florida is a disaster. California looks like it's going down the road of Florida. Uh, the entire Gulf Coast, frankly, is uninsurable almost, it seems like. Like, what what are you seeing? Hey, well, what you see in the headlines is exactly what I'm seeing in the headlines. I Look, it, it just makes sense. Um, and, and I think... Um, uh, I forget her last name, but Daryl, who's the economist at uh, Redfin, shared a handful of articles that I thought were fascinating and excellent covering this topic just a, a day or two ago on Twitter. And the reality is that when it comes to higher risk or dis- and or disaster-prone areas in the last few years, the amount of emigration throughout the, the country has increased so you can't have more people moving into more disastrous prone areas and expect that insurance still as a model works the model has to change and so for the model to actually be of any benefit to anyone you either spread the risk meaning that you get a lot of other policies in other areas and and let them subsidize the risky area or you reduce your exposure to the risky area and I think this is exactly how some of the companies are responding. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, when it gets to uh, situations like what's in Louisiana, where there's a state-run program, it's a state-mandated program, uh, the costs of that program cannot keep pace. And so the state has to eat it. 
and this is and it's it's a compounding problem. It's a snowball effect. It's not like you can just suddenly stop that. Like, what are you going to do? Stop hurricanes from just pummeling Louisiana? I mean, it just it's not going to happen. So, and, and we saw a lot. Was it last year? The Mississippi was so dang low. The freaking Gulf was literally going upstream. Which is, like, when I thought about that, I was like literally one of the most terrifying things I could think about. Like the ocean just coming in, <laughs> just swallowing the land. And it might be hyperbolic to put it that way. But uh, I think that ultimately the reality is here, um, there's uh, there's going to be a lot of good risk that companies are taking. And then they're thinking about long term and preservation of their book of business ability to actually cover losses. And um, there's going to be those who see opportunity in gambling. And I, I don't think the I don't think the gamblers are going to win. Uh, not naming any names or going in down that path at all, but I just think that the, the, there's maybe a little bit of recklessness in some areas. And I think the um, what we're seeing if companies pull out, it's a very unfortunate situation. But you know, this is something that in builders and investors have to take into account. It's just it, it, I, I don't think we're at a point where it can no longer be that you just assume one hundred twenty dollars a month on insurance and. You know that's how you do your underwriting. Like you have to do some more diligence into what have the trends been on insurance, and uh, this is hitting apartment buildings majorly in Florida. Uh, it's going to kill deals. What are you going to do in year three when you're unable to hit your returns and you're actually at a loss and you got to do a capital call? You know, investors mm-hmm. are, are looking at, hey, we can't pay the bills. We either put it, chip in money to cover for now, or they hand it back to the bank. You know, that's a real scenario. That's a nightmarish scenario, but that's a real scenario that some may face. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think that, um, I don't know. I'm not the crystal ball guy here, but that's a, um, I was just saying that, uh, that I think that some of the Go ahead. discipline for lack of a better word that, that may need to get put on to some of these relatively uninsurable places is going to come from the lenders because ultimately uh you know the lender is going to be left holding the bag if the equity holder can't afford Mm. the property anymore and the lender is a little bit removed so you know the 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 state's not going to point the finger as quickly at the lender for saying hey you're jacking up your rates the way they do to insurance companies, right? The insurance company is always the bad guy. And so regulators have a lot of ability to tell the insurance companies and try to force them to subsidize, which is why they pull out. But, you know, there's there's a negotiation happening there. But I think if the lenders start to say, you know what, like this is going to be uninsurable or is uninsurable, we're just not going to lend, then something is going to happen in the market. Yeah, that's a that's a game of uh, hot potato. <laughs> I won't be entering that one. But that's a really great opportunity for us to transition here, speaking of crystal balls, into my favorite segment of the show, which I call For the Future. For the Future is when I get to ask each guest who comes on the show to give their best predictions based on the following four questions. Vikas, are you ready to play? I am ready. Let's do it. Question number one. What does a Zebo look like one year from now? One year from now. That's a good question. I like that a lot. I like that better than the five years that sometimes I get. One year from now, I think it looks very similar 
but much better. What do I mean by that? Very similar in that we offer, we continue to offer all the feature functionality that we do. There's a couple of big, you know, feature areas that we're going to fill in over the next few months. The big one being maintenance and communication management within the app. But really to go back to what we were talking about around delight a year from now, everything is going to be smoother. Everything's going to feel tighter. Mm -hmm. Everything's going to feel more unified. Things are going to be more seamless where there is friction. There's not going to be friction. Like we are really continuing to invest heavily in delivering on the promise of a fully integrated and unified application. And I think we're just going to be that much closer a year from now. Awesome. Question number two on For the Future. Will mom pop investor activity continue to increase or decrease over the next few years? Why? I think... The long-term trend is increase. I think over the next few years, probably decrease as, and I guess this is where I wish I had a crystal ball on interest rates, but I just think as long as loan rates are 7 8 9%, it's just really hard to make a lot of investment deals pencil. So I think what we're going to see is mm-hmm. the short-term trend of the sort of first time one unit because I own a property and I move, that's just going to continue. And I think that that class of folks is going to grow. I think the I already have a portfolio and I'm looking to add to it. I think there's already been a large a significant slowdown in investor deal activity in general. And I think that's continue that's going to continue to be slow um, as interest rates stay high um, because, you know, pricing disconnects don't quite normalize that quickly in real estate because people don't sell unless they have mm-hmm. to. Um, and so that's sort of what I would say over the next few years. Number three, what's one industry trend you think will continue, but you wish would go away? Hmm. I think the institutionalization of SFR real estate investing is only going to continue, but I wish it would go away. Um, And it, The reason I wish it would go away is not so much because I think that that set of investors are evil or that they're taking over the market. I actually think that it just creates a lot of noise that lets people avoid the harder discussions and the more real discussions around how do we make housing more affordable for folks. So when you can say it's the institutional, it's Wall Street buying up all the homes, which if you look at the data, right, it's like a couple of percentage points. It's not like they're buying up half or 70% of the homes. But when you can say those Wall Street fat cats are buying up all the homes, 
that's an easy headline. It's easy for people to blame. And it lets you avoid the discussion of around, all right, in many of these markets, you just need more supply. And that, at the end of the day, like, yep. you just need more supply. That's uh, Yeah, you're not wrong. Yeah. Last one here. What's one thing you believe will dramatically change or fade away in real estate as a result of tech advances? So I think this is something I think a lot about. Um, and I think there is there is stuff that's easy to digitize. And so, for example, you know, you no longer necessarily need people to go around, knock on doors to collect rent. Um, there's stuff that's very hard to digitize and someone's mm. got to show a unit. Now you can do smart locks and video walkthroughs and all that stuff, but there's ways to, to make it a little bit more tech enabled. But ultimately there's stuff, there's a lot of stuff in real estate that just has to happen in the physical world. And then there's the middle ground. And I think the middle ground yeah. is where things are the most interesting. Um, and so how much of that property management experience can you digitize? Um, and so I think there's interesting things happen with take maintenance, for example, right? And there's a fairly good chunk of quote unquote routine maintenance that the homeowner or the tenant can do on by themselves if they just know what to do and technology combined with yeah. an expert on the phone or on a video can actually remove the need for a service call. And that's like better for everyone um, because it's faster service. It's cheaper. Um, yep. And, and that's where I think, if you ask sort of like 10 years ago, what couldn't be digitized? I think a lot of people would say maintenance, but we've actually found a way to digitize pieces of maintenance. So it's that middle ground that I think is super interesting yeah. of like, how can you take things that still need to be done in the physical world, but either better enable people to self-serve or, and, and, and do that in a way that just makes things better for everyone. And I think that maintenance example is interesting. I know I talked about showings. I do think though that like the combination of smart blocks and video walkthroughs are actually very interesting. And we might see plus sort of the 3D walkthrough like that, you know, can you make it so that only highly qualified folks do the showing? Like it, it there's, there's those sorts of things that I think we're gonna mm. see more of like bridging the physical digital gap in a way that just makes life better for everyone. Very cool. We're going to move on to the final three because these are questions for our listeners to get to know you personally just a bit better. First one, what are you reading? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, I am reading. I actually have on my desk right now. I'm looking at the title right now so I get it right. Talk to me like I'm someone you love. And it is a book on how to improve communication in relationships because I just got married um, less than a year ago. And we... Let's go. Listen, can always do things better, right? 
There it is. That's good. That's a. That's a. I appreciate that actually. Yeah, I'm gonna look that up. That book. I love stuff like that. Number two, who are you learning from? Who am I learning from? I'm gonna name a few different people. So professionally, I would say, shout out to Rich Boyle on my board. He's a GP at Canaan. Uh, led the seed round into a Zebo. But we actually first interact at LoopNet, one of the early, early prop tech companies, pre-CoStar acquisition. I worked at LoopNet. Rich was the CEO. Learned a lot from him there. And we sort Taking of got reunited at Azebo. And I'm continuing to learn a lot from him, um, both from his experience as a CEO and now as an investor and active board member. Um, and then shout out to my wife, who I'm learning a lot from. She is a communications specialist in the field of global health, um, MD, PhD, significantly smarter than I am, uh, but part different places where she has a lot of excellent advice. She produces a podcast for the World Health Organization. So as we've gotten our podcast off the ground, she has been an invaluable source of advice. Um, and then, like Very I said, cool. trying to be better every day about communication. Awesome. All right. The very last one here. What inspires you? One thing that I love about, and I've been working in tech since 2006, um, dating myself here. Um, one thing that I love about technology and this sort of to wrap things around goes back to, I think the first or second question about, you know, why I like this market segment or sort of what attracted me to it is really mm -hmm. the ability to provide new innovative products and services to people in a way that's going to fundamentally transform their lives. And whether it's enabling a real estate investor who does this on the side to use the 10 hours a month they get back by using a platform like ours, whether that means they get to buy another property or two more properties, or that means they get to play with their kids for one more day a month. Like it's go do what you want to do, right? Go live your life and I can help be a part yeah. of that. And then on the renter side, if I can make it easier for them to stay on time with their rent, build their credit with their rent, stay protected with insurance and really be in a better financial position to someday own a home, someday become a real estate investor or, you know, get the car that they need or whatever it may be. Then that's also like really mm -hmm. having a profound impact on people's lives. So I think it's easy to think, that financial services and prop tech is boring. But if we think about like what is really impactful to people and where are most of the people getting a lot of stress in their lives from in general, it's do I have enough money? Can I afford to live 
frankly, like, can I afford to live in anything I can do? Or mm-hmm. am I working so hard that I can't spend time with the people that I love or spend time with the things that I love doing? Anything that I can do to help take some of that out of their life, that's, that's what keeps me going every day. It's super cool. Vikas, it's been great. Thanks for coming on the show. Uh, there's there's two things I'm going to ask you for. The first one, please go ahead uh, and, and, and give a plug for your own podcast. Yeah. So our podcast is the Hacking Real Estate Podcast. Um, I co-host that with Brandon Hall, who you may know as the Real Estate CPA. Um, you can find that at hackingrealestatepodcast.com. Um, or if you come to azebo.com, you can find it there. We publish on all the major platforms, Spotify, Apple, the app that I use, Pocket Cast, which is niche, but I made sure that we publish there so I could listen to it. Um, wherever you want to listen to it, you can listen to it. <laughs> we talk to our, we try to talk to everyone in real estate that we can, but the folks that, that really are near and dear to my heart are the individuals who have five units, 10 units, one unit, just getting into it, been in it a long time. But the ones who are that mom and pop landlord who are, you know, the bulk of the housing providers, the bulk of the investors and the bulk of the housing stock in the United States. Mm-hmm. And then for those who want to learn more about Azebo and or get connected to you, what are the best ways to do that? You can come to our website, azibo.com, A-Z-I-B-O.com, or you can also email me directly. That's Vikas, V-I-K-A-S, at azibo.com. Awesome. Thanks for uh, joining. Thanks for shouting that out so we can make sure we get to, maybe we'll send a few listeners your way. And uh, I'll see you around. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to TechNest, the PropTech podcast. Find all the links and resources mentioned in this episode on technest.io. You can get future episodes delivered to your ears directly by subscribing to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and all other major podcast apps. Follow TechNest on social media to stay up to speed on new developments, resources, and announcements in PropTech. Your support is greatly appreciated. There's two ways you can directly support this podcast. Share episodes you find interesting and then leave a review of the show in the App Store. From Nate and the TechNest team, thanks for listening.